Man, I might need a minute after that song. What an amazing, beautiful song. Shannon did an amazing job. Are you, are you thankful for an amazing team of gifted people using their gifts and their talents to lead us into the throne of God? Are you thankful for that? I'm just really thankful for um, our team. We have some unbelievable individuals within the church that are immensely talented that lead us to the throne of God in moments like we just experienced where, man, it just gives us a picture and a peace uh, that only can come through music that God uses immensely in our lives. And I uh, just am thankful this morning as I was really ministered to this morning with that song during this, uh, this time. So, Cool. If you would turn to your, uh, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 today. Revelation chapter 20. I feel like I'm going to move back a little bit. These lights are very bright down here. Can't see the crowd with my glasses. I figure the Revelation chapter 20, it's um, maybe one of the most debated texts in all of Scripture. I figured I'd wear my glasses today to seem more intelligent <laughs> to all of you. Um, no, I got something in my contact yesterday, and so I had to wear them. My eyes scratched. But today, as we enter into Revelation chapter 20, again, this is a highly debated text, not debated in the known truths, but debated more in the idea of when and where and how things happen, and we'll have some fun with that, but not necessarily a lot. Um, if you're new to our church, this is um, just the third week in a series that we're calling All Things New, as we look at some of the final chapters in Revelation, and our great hope is that as the church in the Roman Empire at the time was experiencing immense persecution from the surrounding world, John's writing from Patmos as he's, he's exiled there, his core um, point in writing was to encourage the church to continue to persevere in light of persecution and all that they were wrestling with, and they were truly tempted to abandon Christ in the face of real rejection, martyrdom, or um, you know, influence of the world and their spiritual enemies that were coming against them. And, and John, excuse me, is writing to encourage them to overcome by providing them some immense visions of what will ultimately come in Christ Jesus as he, his eyes are opened in a vision from the Lord to be able to see what is to come. And so, I, my, my whole point every Sunday is not, I'll just give you, this is free, is not to like give you a theological perspective that you can hang on to in the book of Revelation. That's great. We will wrestle through those things. And if you want to meet with me personally, I would love to have a nuanced conversation to wrestle with these things. My point and my goal is just as John did to encourage you, the church, whether you're here or online, to continue to persevere in light of all that comes against you now, that you might be faithful in following Jesus until the end. Um, you hear me talk about it a lot, and I, and I go on as many as pop possible and lead as many trips as possible to global missions this week, actually. Um, we have a family trip leaving this next, I, I think, Saturday um, on a trip to Costa Rica to build a home. Is anybody here that's going on that trip? Absolutely nobody, so that's cool. Um, 
They're like, we're skipping church the Sunday before we leave. I'm just playing. Um, I think actually knowing them, a lot of them come to the second service. Um, but one of the reasons why I love global missions is not just that we're going to serve because the missionaries are doing a phenomenal job doing that and sharing the gospel and pushing forward the kingdom of God. One of the things I love is it opens our eyes and perspective to what God is doing around the world, his love for the nations, as well as opens our eyes to what's really happening in the church, not just here, but in the church, big C, the global church. And man, I've been overwhelmed with the darkness of what most Christians are coming against around the world. This last November, my wife Sarah and I were with a number of our pastors in Florida with a a group that we give quite a bit to, to church planning around the world called TTI, the Timothy Initiative. And, And they got on a Zoom call with literally hundreds of leaders around the world from India to Africa to all over. And I've been to Tanzania in Africa and saw what they're doing there. And I heard their stories and they began to share about the persecution they're coming against in light of sharing the gospel and going into unreached areas that are hostile to Christianity and the gospel and being put in prison and beaten and their families having to go in hiding because of the reality of people coming after them. I just was in Nepal and spending time with Ramesh and just, uh, just this, this is awesome. Next Sunday, Ramesh will be here with us. And I'm so happy that he's going to be able to share with you some what God is doing as he's in the, the, the trenches rescuing girls out of brothels or being put in them in, in the darkness of what's happening in the world and then coming alongside of them and sharing the gospel with them and empowering them as kingdom people to go out and start businesses and, and then go on and share the gospel in their villages. It's unbelievable. But I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's pretty overwhelming Because many Christians, in the hard work they're doing around the world and and push forward the kingdom of God, the threat of persecution is constant. It's a constant reality of people following Jesus. There's an organization called Open Doors International, and it's an organization that studies and documents the reality of the persecution of the church. This is what it says. It estimates one in seven Christians around the world are persecuted and more than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination. That's a lot of people. It's a different kind than what we maybe are experiencing here in our time. And while we don't have those same maybe experiences as they, they're not putting, we're not being put in prison or being killed or whatever here in the West, it's important to remember what our brothers and sisters are facing in around the world And imagine what they're experiencing. Imagine waking up to the threat of persecution and knowing you'll face hostile pressure uh, from the powers that be around you every single day. So if I ask you, like, if you knew that waking up every day, what might you long for? What might your perspective be? What What would you place your hope in? What vision might motivate you to continue pushing forward in the kingdom of God? I'll tell you this. It's not the things that motivate most of us every single day. Well, what's motivating Christians in other countries that are literally going to be you know, killed for their faith or put in prison for their faith, it's not to be healthy and wealthy and live the American dream. That's not what motivates them because they know all of this is passing. And they know today they might lose everything for just following Jesus. So what is the motivating factor for them? You see, for us, It's easy 
easier, not easy, but easier, and we have our own difficulty to face. And all Christians around the world are facing pressures from the world around them to succumb to the vision of the world. Can I tell you today, you're being pressured to succumb to the vision of the world. Same thing, right? To adopt the values of the world, to abandon the ways of Jesus, to abandon what is in this text you're experiencing today in today's day and age. So what might also for you, as well as the church, when John was writing, what might motivate you towards faithfulness in life and mission? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. Because John here has already encouraged his audience to pursue and be faithful in overcoming by reminding them that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to defeat his enemies. We talked about that last week in Revelation 19, right? And it was part of him, him encouraging them. Jesus wins, okay, right? And here now, he's seeking to encourage them, the audience he's writing to, and for us today by showing them that Christ will reign in a millennial kingdom. That's what I want you to say today is Christ will reign in a millennial kingdom. There's coming a day when Christ will reign fully in a millennial kingdom. So why in the world would this encourage John's audience uh, for them then and for us today? Well, we're going to walk through the text and see that, but I just want to deal with something quickly before we jump in because, again, Revelation 20, highly debated about the nuances of when and how it flushes out and all this different stuff, but the term millennium, just want to deal with that for a moment. It means a thousand years. And this phrase is repeated five times throughout six chapters. These, excuse me, through these six verses, it, it's, it's mentioned five different times. Now, you look at it. There is a lot of trees that have died and ink that has been spilled to discern what is happening here. And people from all different theological perspectives, and there's entire theological systems of how they interpret the Bible based on just these six verses. So I hope you're glad in the last 25 minutes I have to give you everything it means, because we got it all figured out, right? And maybe some of you here have a different perspective or a perspective on these six verses. You might have heard of terms like premillennial or amillennial or even postmillennial. And maybe some of you here aren't even familiar with any of these terms, and to that I am great. I am glad because you might actually have a bit more of an advantage in studying the text, not coming at it with familiar terms and systems and trying to put it in different place, but you can come to the text with fresh eyes and read it as it is. So I'm just calling all of us in this room, no matter what theological perspective we have today, to set that aside and allow God through the text just to encourage your heart this morning, because there's a lot of focus, like I last said last week, about when and where and how of the millennium, and I'm not saying those things aren't important. They're very important, but oftentimes we rush to put things in place rather than us just asking the questions, what? What does God have for us here? And then why as we land the plane at the end? And so I just want us today to open our hearts, look at the text, see what God has for us, and allow it to encourage our hearts as it was meant to encourage the people's hearts when it was written. So, I just want to start with a couple of questions, and the question is this. What marks these thousand years that John describes? And I just want to show you two things. Two things that mark the thousand-year reign that it might encourage our hearts and move us forward in the kingdom of God. And the first thing about what, what marks he describes is that Satan will be bound. That was a great place to say amen. 
Satan will be bound. It's pretty amazing. So look with me in, in Gen- or Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. We see this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Verse 2. And he sees the dragon, the, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So here now, John moves to a new vision. We had a vision last last week. We were looking at Revelation 19, but this vision is just a continuation of visions that he's laid out in previous chapters. And here, throughout the letter, John's describing this unholy trinity we talked about last week of evil, three key enemies of God in his people, Babylon or the beast it talks about, right? This is the Antichrist, then the false prophet, and then Satan, who's often called a dragon within um, Revelation. And here now, towards the end of Revelation, John is actually sharing the series of versions to display the, the, the defeat of all of God's enemies. This is what's meant to encourage us, is that he's like, I'm just showing you strategically how God wins. There's no un... There's, like I said last week, there's not a battle of good and evil where, where God's put up against the wall and he's not sure how he's going to do it and he somehow overthrows the enemy. No, he wants to show you even now before that, it's when, that he wins. And he describes this first defeat of Babylon and the false prophet. And we looked at it last week. So the beast and the false prophet, Antichrist, false prophet, the, the battle of Armageddon, they're taken and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Now it turns his attention to the worst of the worst, his worst enemy, which is the, the apex of all of his enemy found in Satan himself. And, and he's seen in the text, if you read it, he's, what does he say? He said he saw an angel who comes with what? He comes with a key and a chain. And his, he's coming now, and he, he, he binds Satan and throws him into the pit. And the pit here is viewed throughout Revelation as this dwelling place of evil. And Satan's put there and shot and bound and not only is he bound, he's, he's thrown in there for a thousand years, it says in the text. But the pit is shut and sealed for this entire time. And, and what he's doing here is this is highly symbolic in description or to describe that there's a severe blow given to Satan and his power and his influence. The Satan is bound. He's not able to, as we're going to see, deceive the nations for a thousand years in, in deceiving them anymore. And the purpose of his binding... A lot of people wrestle with. There's different perspectives as to why, why is Satan bound and what, what is the reasoning for it that he might no longer, we know, deceive the nations, but what does it look like and what does he mean by deceive the nations? And some people land on verse 8, right? And that he might not be able to deceive, deceive the, the nations to come against the Lord and battle against him. And people say that he might not be able to deceive the nations in pushing forward the gospel and believing the gospel anymore. And there's a lot of different nuances, but we know that Satan will be bound during the millennial kingdom. And the text notes that his binding is for a thousand years, after which Satan will be released for a little while. Now, it's interesting. There's different perspectives. There's people that say this is a literal 1,000 years. That might be you today. You'd think it It's a literal thousand years, and others think that it's more of a symbolic thousand years. And there's no real certainty, no reason why we can't have that that it's both. But a focus here again is 
why this number is used. Why is a thousand years mentioned in the text? Well, I think it's pretty, pretty significant. In, in Jewish writing, a thousand years is symbolic. Listen to this. It's symbol of God's time, and it's a number utilized to communicate an immense or ideal state of time marking a, a messianic reign. And so the, the thousand years is, is to show that there's going to be a reign of the Messiah, Jesus, for a thousand years, and it's put in contrast to the lesser numbers used throughout the book of the enemies of God. Now, understanding this is pretty amazing. It allows us to see that John is strategically using the number to signify that the reign of the Messiah is this ideal time and period in contrast to the previous reigns of all of the enemies of God, that there's coming. He wants to point out there's coming a day that there will be an ideal time where there's a rule and a reign of Christ, and all that you're suffering with, all you're wrestling with, all you're walking through will be put to an end as Christ reigns. That's what he wants to see his people to see. And overall, John's just emphasizing that during this time, Satan is cast. He's bound. He's given a decisive blow, and his power has now been removed. And the whole point, the whole point of the text is to encourage his audience to continue to overcome by reminding them that although, man, they face the pressures of the world, the spiritual forces that come against them, the darkness every single day, it seems like it's more and more, a day is coming when the enemies of God and the power thereof is removed. Man, I, I just hope you know that today. And all that you're wrestling with, all that you're walking in, all that you're come up against in the world around us, all that you see in the world, and you're like, man, it just really seems like the world's burning down all around me. And we might say in our heart of hearts, yeah, I know God hasn't lost control, but in, in, our, in, in, the, in our mind many times we're like, are you, you still got this okay, God? Are you sure you're still building your church? Are you, are you sure that you still like, you can manage this. You sure you don't mean to step in? Like, I, I'm a consultant on the side. Think about it like this. I don't know if you've ever been in a boxing match. I like watching some boxing or MMA. And maybe you face an impossible opponent. Think about like Rocky with Apollo Creed or Ivan Drago. Anybody watch those movies? Absolutely. I can't see any of you, so it's fine. Um, but early on in the match, you just kind of know that it's not going well. You're getting, you're getting it handed to you. I mean, you're taking blow after blow. You're bloodied. Your face is literally getting messed up. You're bruised. You're cut. And at one point, early on in the round, you go to your corner as there's a break, and you just tell your manager, like, I am ready to throw in the towel. I don't need to go any further. I know they're going to win. I don't need to, to make my, fa my face any worse than it already is. Like, I know that they're going to win. Then your manager looks back at you and says, hey, I have something to tell you. You need to know. They've actually determined that your opponent has been cheating this entire time. And to teach them a lesson, the judges are actually going to make him fight his last round with one arm tied behind his back. So if you can just hang on, you can hang in there. We're going to be okay. And in that moment, when you hear that, it changes your whole perspective. Like, man, if I could just hang on the next couple of rounds, I know the final round, I am literally going to blow this person's face up. I'm going to win. Suddenly, there's actual hope. There's knowledge that your, your opponent is ultimately going to be defeated, and you step back into the ring ready to endure, ready to persevere, ready to battle against all that's coming against you. 
Man, this is what I want you to experience today. This is what I think the, the Apostle John wanted his readers to experience when they read this. Is that often in the journey of following Jesus, man, the power and the pressure of the enemy that is coming against us, the world itself, can feel really overwhelming. And I'm not going to lie, you probably feel it as well. Sometimes it feels as though we should just throw in the towel. There's a lot of Christians living today with all that's happening in the world around them. They feel like their values are, are being less valued. They're the opposite, actually. Good seems to be evil, and evil seems to be good. And it just seems like, man, everything's going sideways, and I'm not really seeing an impact that I'm making, and I really don't see an impact that God's making. And then it just feels like, man, I just, just, let's just throw in the towel. I just want to sit in my hands, sit in a chair, and come to church every Sunday and wait till Jesus comes back, because I can't wait. I, I just want to tell you, that's not the perspective God has. That, that's just not where God wants us to be. Because so we can just really wrestle. Why continue to fight for justice for those who face evil and human trafficking when it seems like it's so often it's too great an evil to overcome? And sitting in Nepal, Ramesh telling me that when he first started, there was 500,000 girls in brothels throughout India that were taken from Nepal and taken to India. He's making a dent. But there's days I'm sure he wakes up and like, man, what's the point? Like, I, I, we can't, we can't overcome this. Why continue to pursue what's right when you feel like the pressure of the enemy is the opposite and it's easier just to conform to the values and the ways of the world? Why? Why suffer rejection and persecution when we can simply just deny Jesus or not truly outward deny Jesus, but in our own practice and experience acceptance and peace from the world? Why? Why suffer? Why sacrifice to bring the gospel to nations where you face so much persecution that it could end your life? Why? What's the point? Man, these things can really leave us feeling like the enemy is winning every single day and, and we're not going to win. He's going to win. But, man, realizing that Satan will be bound in the millennial kingdom. There's coming a day amid all of our struggles, right? It can cause us and help us to know, man, we can continue on. We can continue forward in justice and righteousness. We can continue on mission knowing that there's coming a day that's already been determined when his power will be removed. And that's what I long for. That's what I look forward for. That's what I'm ultimately moving towards is that, man, I know that Satan loses and we win. Followers of Jesus today, you may not be waking up every single day wondering if you're going to be thrown in prison or, thrown in, or, or killed for your faith, but you better be ready to wake up every single day, and the pressure is on you to throw this out the window and conform to the values of the world. The pressure is on for you to, to just water down what Scripture says and the holiness of God and what He calls us to and just live in acceptance of all things in the world and just love everyone, which we do. We love every single person, but we still stand on the truth of God's Word. 
And there's coming more days and more days where you're going to be challenged. Do you live by what God says, loving people, showing grace and love, which we can learn from the Word of God? I think less people are in the Word of God today, and that's part of the reason why Christians are looked at as hateful or other things, because we haven't really gathered up what loving the world looks like in light of Christ. And you... I, as all of us, as followers of Jesus, we're going to be challenged. Are we going to stand on the truth of the Word of God while loving people and being gracious, or will we conform to live an easier life? In the coming days, you're going to, there's people in this church sitting in these seats right now that because they just spoke the name of Jesus at work, we're, we're literally persecuted at work. And the coming days are coming for you. Will you stand and follow Jesus and all that he has for you? Or will we morph and change just to be what the world wants us to be rather than following after the ways of Jesus? Well, the thing that can motivate us is that, I mean, there's coming a day where we will be a part of the kingdom of God that will be all right. And Satan will be bound and he will suffer a decisive blow that we might be able to walk in freedom. Well, what else? The what of Jesus' millennium, the second thing, is that saints reign with the victorious King Jesus. Look with me in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast for its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the, the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy, verse 6, is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Amazing, amazing. John, again, indicates that there's this vision, new vision that he gets when he says, well, then I saw, right? And this is the fifth vision of seven visions that he has. And in this vision, John sees thrones, and there's a symbol of reigning, and those on them have authority, actually, to judge. And the imagery that he's drawing from is actually Daniel chapter 7, um, where we see that the, a reign of authority and judgment is given to the Son of Man and His holy ones, or the saints. It's amazing. And both Scripture and Revelation throughout it promise that God's people would reign with Him one day. And this is the picture here. And I just want to know, when you, there, there's a day coming where we are going to rule and reign with Christ. It's amazing. But in this vision, John highlights a specific group of people who are a part of the ruling class, these people who are what we call martyrs. They've, they've lost their life for the cause of Christ. They've been literally killed, those who have suffered the most ultimate end in death, the example of all of us, right, who do not bow down to the beast. And he says, man, these people will be a part of this group. To this group, this faithful group, they'll be victorious overcomers, both martyrs and saints, who experience the reward of resurrection in the reigning with Christ, that they'll be raised and reigning with Jesus. The reality is, is that not everyone 
will be resurrected with Christ and reign with Christ. Those who are dead and not in Christ, this is, we'll get into this more next week, those who are dead and not in Christ will not be raised until the time comes for the final judgment. Again, we'll explore much of this next week, right? And even within this, the resurrection, again, I'll get to this in a moment, but your theological perspective will discern when this actually happens, the resurrection. But John concludes that, that there's something distinct, this blessing that happens to these faithful overcomers that receive. There's a few things. He says that they receive the resurrection, resurrection such that the second death, the final separation from God, the lake of fire, they don't experience. That those of us who are in Christ you know, have overcome no matter where we're at, whether we're here or around the world, we're facing great persecution or, or, or a different type of persecution here when we live every single day. It says those people that will be resurrected and will be ruling and reigning with Christ will not experience the, what they, the Bible calls the second death, which is where Satan is. Verse, or the second thing is that they will be priests of God with the Messiah. This is pretty profound, even speaking to Scripture. It says we are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And then the last thing, they will rule with Christ in the period of time that they're going to, we as the saints and those who have given life, we're going to rule with Christ. What, what the picture is that he's pointing to is that there's a restoration of human design the way that God had purposed it actually to be. Being in God's image bearers, living out the kingdom of God as priests with God. This has begun in the millennial kingdom. This is the picture that he's pushing forward. Now, all of this serves just to encourage the people that would have read it, to motivate them, motivate them, encourage them to overcome in the face of immense tribulation and persecution. Now, this amazing picture is earthly, of an earthly universal reign of Christ, which is his faithful saints are participating in and with and being present. This, this is this is meant to give us courage. This is meant for them to have courage. This is what we actually should, should motivate us to be faithful in the kingdom of God, is that this is what we long for. I just ask you, like, have you ever thought about that? Like, what motivates you to live out the kingdom of God in the world today? Like, what motivates you to, to live out and, and actually in the face of, of not the easiest time to live for Jesus. What motivates you every single day? Well, this is one of the things the Scripture shows us that should motivate us, that motivates us. This is what's going to actually happen. The description of a universal reigning of the saints of God, especially the martyrs, is meant to help us remain faithful in hopes that one day, one day, what we will receive is coming. Right? Anybody here ever watched the movie The Hunger Games? Don't judge anyone who has or has been, but maybe you read the books, you're a book person, you've read the novels, Hunger Games. It's interesting when you, when you see it, it kind of gives us a picture even of what this looks like. There's this population of people, right, in this future comp uh, country uh, of um, Pan Am, who they suffer under the persecution, really the cruel, unjust reign of the capital as it is, and they're required to really sacrifice their children in these games as they suffer immense poverty, and really the capital is flourishing in wealth. And, and, and here, all of this, the characters are longing for a just, righteous rule and flourishing for all. And, and you see that throughout all of the films, and it leads to this ultimate revolution as they seek to dismantle the capital as it is. And, and, 
and to see flourishing happen as they're enduring persecution. This is the vision they're looking forward to, that, man, we could defeat and overthrow the capital and have flourishing. And yet the vision, this vision of this future is what actually continues to motivate them in the face of great persecution. And there's one person in the whole movie that everybody knows. Her name's Katniss, right? And she says something in the movie that's fascinating. She says, what I need is the, is the dandelion in the spring, the bright yellow that means rebirth instead of destruction, the promise that life can go on no matter how bad or our losses, that it can be a good again. You see, just that statement, it gives us an idea of even what John is getting, the vision of what the future is or could be is what empowers them in the movie in the face of great persecution and battles. Man, I'll tell you, this is what John's heart is in the text. In the face of persecution, in the face of what the people are experiencing when he's writing, he's providing a vision that when Christ comes again, he will reign with his people for a thousand years, and we get to be a part of that in the kingdom of God. We are part of this situation, that Jesus is going to establish his rule and his reign and bringing injustice and righteousness and shalom back to the world, right? And John is showing that there's a time when we're actually going to join Jesus in this rule and begin and realize the transformation of the world towards what it's always meant to be in Christ. And again, we're often tempted to lose sight of what is to come and be consumed with the, the reality of the present, of what you're experiencing every day, or what you know of is happening around the world every day. We're prone to think that, man, evil will win. If we wake up every day, I don't care what news channel you watch, if you wake up every day and watch the news, it's like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like good's winning. It seems like the opposite. I mean, we get into this idea, we're prone to think like evil is winning, injustice and unrighteousness will be forever, there's no hope for the world, and you know, really, we're just kind of doing the best we can, and when this happens, man, we will be prone to despair and give up, rather, God wants us to look at the truth of God's word and be forward-focused in the fact that we should be looking forward at all times, looking and longing for the day when Christ returns, looking and longing to what we ultimately have in Christ Jesus one day, and in that, find hope for today. Man, when we stop and look what, what is to come, the rule of Christ, when we begin to see that there's a day when the enemy will no longer have power and what you come against every single day will no longer be there, when injustice and unrighteousness will no longer be present, and when, when something new and perfect will come, and in Christ's reign, we get to be a part of it. I don't know about you, I look forward to the future as great as today is. Man, when I look to the future, my heart is filled with hope that's why it feels weird to me, I'll just be honest with you, preaching through this series. I'm more emotional than I normally am because there's this longing, I think, in our hearts and our lives for the way the world is ultimately meant to be, that God is going to make all things back into an Eden state, the way that he had that at the very beginning, and he's going to rule and reign, and we're going to be with him. And that's my ultimate longing, as great as everything is here today. And my heart for you today as a follower of Jesus is to stay faithful. 
Don't lose hope, but don't stay faithful just because you just, I just got you. Look to the future hope that we have in Christ and allow that to press into you, knowing that no matter what you come up against today, you serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we win. We win today, we win tomorrow, we win the next day. Even in our death, even in every martyr that's ever given their life for Jesus, they won. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of Christ. And as Paul said, it's better to go and be with Christ. So the the world can come at us in any way they want. The devil can come at us in any way they want. But it doesn't matter what they come up with. We win. Even in them taking our own lives, we win. Because ultimately, we long for and we look forward to a time when Christ will rule and reign. And the world you're living in right now will be made new and all things will be made perfect. And this is what motivates me. So, but I just ask you today, like, where's your focus? Is your focus on the craziness that's happening around the world today? Or is your focus on the fact that Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not one day when he wins, but now? And there's a reality coming that we will be with him, we will rule and reign with him for all of time. And as we look at the, we've been looking at the what and the why of the message, I I hope you've understood and felt the power of actual John's vision that it's truly a a powerful and encouragement thing to to be faithful now in the present. But there's still an opinion of when. I'm not going to give it a ton of time. I'll just roughly give it to you here just in a moment. Some see this, you know, this kingdom as a spiritual reality that's present now. That would be called amillennialism. That they would see that we're living in the kingdom right now, that at Christ's death and resurrection, this is when this happened. A great blow happened to Satan, and we're now living in the millennial kingdom, now ruling and reigning with Christ. And Christ, we are now with him, and Satan's bound no longer being able to actually deceive people away from the gospel, and the gospel's going forward. Others' perspective would be more of a premillennial position, seen as a final reality that is to come one day in a literal thousand years that we reign with Christ. Now, wherever we land, I'll just tell you this. I love this quote from Michael Byrd. It says, the millennium, the millennium can be regarded as the primarily a phase that the divine rule, an eschatological transition, big word, from the old age to the fullness of the new creation. And we recognize that this is not a gospel issue. I mean, you could have a different theological position in this room, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that there's a lot of different nuances of the fact that, man, where we land in the timeline of this happened. Can I tell you? It doesn't matter in your motivation. If you believe in a, a spiritualize of this text and that we're living in the millennial kingdom now, man, it should, it should motivate you that Satan is bound right now and you're living with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you adhere to a premillennial position that one day Christ will be fully bound, will live and rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, that should motivate you today in the, in the face of opposition to live for the hope that we have. No matter where it is, it should encourage us to continue moving forward in the kingdom of God in the face of opposition. That we might be faithful to all that God has for us, right? Therefore, I just want to read this quote from a guy by the name of Fanning Buist. In his commentary on Revelation, he says this, Revelation 20 is part of the 
consistent biblical paradigm that human glory does not come from self-exaltation, but from submission to God as supreme and from obedience to Him despite harsh opposition. Paul's opinion is profoundly true that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us in Romans 8, 18. In our present groaning and longing for complete redemption for ourselves and for the whole creation, we must live in hope, that eager expectation of what we do not yet possess, but can be confident in Christ. God is refining our character even now through our faithful endurance and suffering, but the best is yet to be in the future. That one day... All of what we experience here on earth, the trouble, the overwhelming persecution in different forms that we experience here and Christians experience around the world, one day all of that will come under the feet of Christ. So we worship God in this place knowing that He is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that we have been graciously invited in to that kingdom and we get to rule and reign with Christ. And I just don't know if we believe it. When I say these things, I feel like many Christians are like, I don't even, I don't, what, we're going to rule with Jesus? What the world does that mean? I, I just don't know if we grasp it. I feel like we live so present to the world we're living in now that there's coming a day where we will be with Christ. All of what we strive after in this world will mean nothing that we will get to be with Him and rule with Him and reign with Him for all of eternity. And I can't even really fathom what that looks like. My, my hope is that one day, man, my hope, that is my hope, that one day I stand with Him in, in all of His presence and I get to see it and experience it for myself. And that's what motivates me today to walk up on a platform and preach and try to inspire you and myself included to go out and live righteous and faithful lives because we're a part of something greater than ourselves. We're part of something bigger than just sitting in a chair and hearing a sermon. We're part of something bigger than just living for the wealth that we live for. We're, we're part of something bigger than just living an easy life. We're, something, we're part of something much bigger than what we're living every single day in this world. We're a part of the kingdom of God, and that is coming in full fruition, and that is my earnest hope and all that I look forward to. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for today and for Revelation 20, no matter where it is that theologically we, we land on the time frame of when it's going to happen, we believe firmly that Christ, as we said last week, you are coming again, and we believe and know that you will squash Satan and your enemies, and you will, you will victoriously reign God, will you, will you plant in our hearts the reality of that today? That we live in the already but not yet. You've already won. You're already victorious. You're already ruling today, and we get to be a part of that. But it's not yet fully realized. One day it will, and one day we'll stand before you, and one day we'll be in your presence for all of time, and one day we'll be ruling and reigning with you for all time. May that God sink 12 inches from our head to our heart and motivate us to live for something greater than what the world offers. May it motivate us, God, as we come against persecution to not speak the name of Jesus in our workplace, to not uh, stand up 
stand uh, true to the values of the Word of God and what you call us to, when we're, we're faced with opposition to just, to just give in to the values of the world, God, would you motivate us by your gospel and motivate us by what is to come and the fact that we're part of a bigger kingdom, we're part of a different kingdom. And empower us, Holy Spirit, to be faithful. And what faithfulness means in this time, it might not mean imprisonment and, and losing our lives, but it might mean losing uh, clout. It might mean losing a job. It might mean losing friendships. It might mean being on the outside. It might mean, God, not having all that the world offers. But give us, God, the faith and the hope to live for something greater than this world. An earth, a heavenly kingdom that its treasure is not corruptible and no thieves can come in and steal. Give us vision to live for that kingdom, God. Even as we take little boxes home and hope to bring back after a few weeks, a few hundred dollars to push forward the kingdom of God and places where people are literally giving their lives. Motivate us, God, to be generous, to see your kingdom move forward. Motivate us, God, to, to speak the truth to our neighbors and our networks through the gospel. And in all of it, God, we just thank you for allowing us to be a part of your kingdom and what you're doing here and now and what we'll be doing with you for all of time. It's in your great name we pray, Jesus. Amen.